Well, greetings, friends, and welcome to the Gospel Underground Podcast. This is episode 149, Christian Nationalism from Texas with Love. We are broadcasting live, well, live for us from our worldwide headquarters here in Blacksburg, Virginia, and is it called the Panhandle Dave of Texas? Amarillo, Amarillo, Texas. Amarillo, Texas. My friend David Ritchie is here with us for a special episode. We're taking a little jump out of our normal series to have a friend on, a true friend. I'm grateful to be here with Pastor David Ritchie. We are going to be talking about Christian nationalism. I, I confess that Dave, my first uh, thoughts of having you on was, one, I enjoyed your book. You've written a book on it. Why Do the Nations Rage? The Demonic Origin of Nationalism. That book is right down here, guys, on my shelf. I've been reading it on Kindle. I was a little nervous, Dave, because, you know, when you talk about such things today, um, you get put in categories by sometimes your friends. And so friends out there, don't put us in categories. We're going to have a good time talking about a very important cultural issues of the day the gospel underground exists to advance the mission of God in the borderlands between the church and culture, and certainly this sort of things, thinking about politics, thinking about nations. We're in election year coming up, David. It's going to be on again, like we said, growing up on like a pot of neck bones. Do they say that in Texas? Maybe. I don't know. I haven't heard that one yet. Okay. Yeah. Usually playing spades with the brothers, we say it's all like a pot of neck bones. Dave, you're in Texas. And I was interested in your book, one, because we're friends, but also uh, Christian nationalism coming um, out of the great nation of Texas, who also have great love for the nation north of Texas, America. Um, I was really interested that you would write this book in a place where there might be some nationalism, perhaps maybe some Christian nationalism. Dave, thank you for doing this. You were born in uh, what you called the West Texas wilderness city of Amarillo. I've been there, Dave. It's pretty, I liked it. It was pretty nice. Saw a big canyon. It's a great place. Ate a steak as big as my head. It was kind of, kind of really fun. But so you, you hold degrees from Amarillo College, West Texas, not the, the Texas A&M, but West Texas A&M? Or are they That's affiliated? Correct. Okay. University and Reform Theological Seminary. An agnostic growing up, conversion to Jesus Christ, helping replant a church from 2011, and even a structure uh, instructor in religion at your at one of your alma maters, West Texas A&M, right. writing in local newspapers, writing books on the board of some of my favorite people in the world, the Redeemer Network, married to Kate, lived together with three sons, right? My three sons. I, That's I, right. Yeah, probably got that a hundred times. Solomon, Samuel. And Simon Peter, right? We got prophet, priest, and king right there, I think. Dave, welcome to the Gospel Underground Podcast. Oh, man, Reed, it is such an honor to be on the show with you and just have such deep appreciation for you and for your ministry. Oh, thank you, brother. You know, it's uh, we do have, Jesse and I, Jesse and I co-host this podcast, Jesse Fury, one of my pastors, and we joke that we we're courageous enough to do a podcast where we're going to try to be the talent, which is kind of our joke, joking way to do some self-deprecating, but also saying we're not just going to have famous people on here to boost our numbers, which actually does happen when we have famous people on. Dave, maybe you'll boost our numbers. Um, we'll see. <laughs> you wrote a book on Christian national. What got you interested in that topic, and why Why did you think it's so important to have, like uh, Chesterton said, at the various provocation, or was said about Chesterton, at the uh, minimalist of provocation, willing to write many books? Why did you write this, and why? what got you interested in this topic? Well, Reed, the simple answer is 
this book, this topic, the research that I've done on this topic was provoked from my pastoral context. I'm living in this moment, living in a very polarized age, living in West Texas, which is a, um, a very deeply conservative place, um, beginning to sense even my last 12 years of ministry as a lead pastor, um, such a radical change kind of in our political arena and what it was doing to people's hearts and, and this interesting conflation um, between the Christian gospel and um, the politics of our day and age. That it was something that I began to pay attention to because it was something that was on the minds and the hearts of the people that I love, the people that I serve. And really, the idea came from this conviction that uh, I, I was noticing in everyday conversation with people that I love, with I, that I serve, that politics was becoming something that really was capture, capturing their imagination, capturing um, really the affections of their heart in such a way that was beginning to cross that line into just not just a fatu infatuation, not just interest, but really something that was almost indistinguishable from worship. It was the the functional good news of, of people's hearts. And so I really wanted to issue um, a, a word of warning and also yeah. try to understand a, a very flashpoint issue, not through the lens of just history and sociology and political science, but to ask the question, can we understand something like nationalism and Christian nationalism in explicitly biblical and theological categories? Yeah, one of the unique things about your work, Dave, is that I I, uh, I wasn't shocked, but I was very interested that you put this in religious terms, like like another religion, even your definition, your definition in the book on page 34 was, thus I contend nationalism is best defined religiously. Uh, nationalism is the exaltation, lifting up high, of a nation or a conception of a nation to the place of, and I think this language is important, highest allegiance, highest concern, highest devotion, right? Making a god out of the nation, so to speak. Yes, sir. I mean, it's it really is something that we do, we take good things and we turn them into ultimate things. And that really can cascade into this reordering of our lives and yeah. how we speak, how we think, how we live. And simply noticing that it is appropriate and good to be able to have a rightly ordered love for your nation, but that it can twist into idolatry, that That's it right. can twist into something that is very deadly, very dangerous. And I would even argue spiritually charged. Yeah, and I think Dallas Cowboys fans probably need that warning today not to put uh, other things so high up as well. Yes. Um, yes. And so nationalism, highest allegiance, putting the nation above all else, and the Christian version of it, if I might be so bold, would say putting ultimate concern, say, for America above the kingdom of God and of, of his Christ, and then using Christian symbols, language, institutions to do so. Is that is that a fair way to put yeah, it? Ab absolutely. I, I, I tend to view Christian nationalism as simply the, the idolatry of nationalism in a Christian veneer. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. presenting essentially a political agenda, a political love, and then casting that in the language of the gospel. Mm -hmm. it's, it's essentially using a lot of the religious categories and terms and um, symbols that we find in Christianity to make this political agenda somehow sacrosanct, somehow having a sense of uh, divine approval and authority that is placed on it. And, and therefore, it's capable of eliciting a religious level of devotion. Yeah. And that's why it's such an important cause of concern for me as a pastor is because if anything is 
distracting our worship from Jesus and, and yeah. from really just Christ and Christ alone, yeah. that is something that we have to be able to enter into that space and, and lovingly and passionately plea for people to, to be able to understand the danger of that idolatry. Because, I mean, the thing about idols is they blind us to their existence. You, know, yeah. you can think of Psalm 115, that yeah. idols are you know, deaf, they're dumb, they have eyes, but they, they do not see, they have ears, but they do not hear. And, and here's the scary thing is those who make them become like them. That's right. They, they have That's the capacity right. to blind us to their very existence. And so this is something that I'm noticing that's happening in our nation, that's happening especially in, in very obvious, salient ways in my own community and trying to be able to put biblical language to it so that we can be able to diagnose this from a, a, a very biblical standpoint. That's right. And, and and you think about the history of politics and whether it's two-party or other situations throughout the world, uh, certainly uh, politicians want this sort of religious fervor from their followers, right? Even like political rallies and campaigns, they kind of have this revivalist feel. And it's not uncommon for like a, a Joe Biden to quote Bible verses in the right places or or for Donald Trump to pose with the Bible as if he's God's man defending the church or something during a during a protest. And so they want us to do this. It seems like both on the left and the right that a lot of people are willing to join in, uh, Dave, uh, where there's just passion and devotion that's so high, like the saviors are the political leaders now or the, the vote going the right way. And almost the hells that we have are what we left, we're left when, when we lose. Absolutely. And the really crazy thing is it's not just a both left and right issue. It is something that goes deep, deep, deep down into history as well. In fact, the oldest forms of religion that we know of are almost always this conflation of the divine and the nation state, right? Yeah, and yeah, yeah. You, you have, you know, Sumerian kings and Egyptian pharaohs that are essentially casting themselves as a type of God-man. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a type of Messiah. Even before Jesus comes, there's this conflation between the political leader trying to unite his humanity with a sense of the divine. And, and I, one of the more amazing things that I discovered as I was researching for this book was going into a deep dive on the Roman imperial cult and how that was established. Essentially, Augustus is the one who gets the Senate in Rome to uh, pass this motion where Julius Caesar is apotheosized. He becomes literally a god, yeah. uh, which I always think is really funny because the <laughs> last thing that the Senate did to Julius Caesar was stab him to death. Yeah. Um, but they made up for it. They, they literally make him a god a little bit later. And anyways, this becomes something that's really important for Augustus because it turns him into a son of a God because he's an adopted son of a God. And then he becomes a a God after he dies. And this of course is the Roman imperial cult that really causes the early Christian persecutions because the reason the early Christians are persecuted is not because they're claiming Jesus is Lord. It's because they refuse to acknowledge that Caesar is Lord. They're not going to make sacrifices to him. They're not going to offer up their allegiance to him in that way. And that really is where they start experiencing the violent persecution that they experience. And so it is a thing that we do. Uh, that's right. We still have those politicians today that try to cast themselves as type of Christ figures. Yeah, and all of it's so staged. I mean, ever since the television cameras turned on, everything is staged. Everything is visual, how people, where they stand, what they stand for. 
is always, which is very interesting, right? In the, that first century, the same word kurios, right, that was used was exchanged. Like in the Christians would say, no, no, Jesus is that. It's it's like indirect subversion of the, the powers is. that stand on the earth. And certainly, uh, you know, the the, the presence of, of God on the earth is reserved to the incarnation in our theology. And I, I think as uh, Protestants, we'd probably... Uh, object to the papacy kind of taking up that tradition, maybe saying that the the life of God is or life of Christ is with them. So Dave, this is ancient. Your book even says this is spiritual in the sense that there are spiritual powers and principalities. And even some of the traditions you mentioned to me uh, that are very into Christian nationalism are kind of like Pentecostalism and uh, various charismatic strains, health, wealth, prosperity, preachers, um, making claims. Now, your contention is you kind of take up those terms and say, yes, this is a spiritual thing, but it's demonic in origin. Well, wait, I bet you made some Christian nationalists mad with that language <laughs> with demons. Are you backing off from that or are you staying with the thesis? I'm staying with the thesis and with the clarifying comment that when I say demonic origin of nationalism, I'm not saying that as a put down. I'm not saying that to punch someone in the face or pick a fight with them. I'm actually making a very sincere, um, dispassionate biblical argument related to how the powers and principalities are very much related to these false gods that have a, yeah. a level of spiritual dominion over the nations and yeah. how the kingdoms really of the spiritual earth, yeah. dominion is is shattered and broken because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that there's a, a liberation that happens to the nations. But, I mean, you look back into the ancient world, there was such a, a common uh, feature in a lot of the religious cultures of worshiping a national patron deity. Mm -hmm. That national yeah, patron yeah. deity was um, viewed as the god that would make a nation prosper and do well and be protected and be victorious in battle. In some ancient nations, that patron deity was even considered to be the embodiment of that nation, the spiritual embodiment of that nation. And I'm simply posing the question, kind of creating this analogy where there's not that much of a, a distinction between an, uh, you know, a person living in the ancient Near East worshiping their national patron deity. And when we are so tempted to worship our own political vision of our nation as a functional That's right. God, That's it's, right. it's, a, it's an enduring idolatry. Yeah. Yeah, amen. I think we all have kind of run into friends, whatever their political ideology is, who just seem to be so ramped up and ramped into it. And I love that this kind of project day for you came out of uh, your concern for people, right, that you see this happen to. And, and as a pastor, whether you're in Vermont or Texas, right, uh, this temptation can exist anywhere, and we certainly want to resist it. Now, um, Define for me a difference between kind of a nation is the highest thing in my heart, really, maybe in Christian dress and clothes, uh, and like patriotism, right? Because you, yeah. you, I'm sure you've heard this from probably friends in your own communities, like, hey, I'm a patriotic Christian. Is What's wrong with that? Uh, are you saying I'm a Christian uh, nationalist? What's, what, what's the difference, Dave? Help us out here. Absolutely. Well, I really do value the distinction that is oftentimes made in nationalism studies between these two terms, nationalism and patriotism. And, and what I like to be able to do is I actually like to apply a little bit of an Augustinian framework to those terms and say, really, how we should understand this is patriotism 
at least shows and conveys to us that we can have a rightly ordered love for our nation. So for all the listeners out there real quick, Augustine had a kind of a chain of being and a degrees of our affections. They should go upward to the highest thing, the highest affections. That's at the top of the chain of being, so to speak, with God himself and the lowest being rocks. You shouldn't love rocks or nations to a high degree as you would God. Okay, go ahead, Dave. And so the idea is there is a, a right place to order our loves and when it's related to our nation. And that's something that should be not only considered a good or permissible thing, it's a necessary thing for our society. Wow. We want to have a sense of communal love for one another, love for our neighbors that exist in this imagined community that is the nation, so to speak. And that really is a prerequisite for us being able to have civil society together, to be able to, to share um, and to seek the common good with one another. Yeah. However, that... <laughs> good thing, the, the nation that we can love together can become twisted. It can become a disordered love. It can be elevated to a place that is really out of order and in a place where really only God should be. And whenever that happens, that is a way that we can define nationalism. That's right. And that's I am right. by no means um, unique in defining nationalism as a type of religion. There's a whole bunch of books and articles that's right. that show how nationalism operates a lot more like a religion than a distinctive political ideology. Because here's the thing. You can have versions of nationalism on the right. You can have versions of nationalism on the left. That's right. That's right. Arguably, both Hitler and Stalin were nationalists, but they had vastly different political ideologies that were motivating their their conception of the nation. But in both of their cases, the mm. nation essentially became the ultimate good. Yeah, and so... And sometimes they have tanks, and that's why it's a concern for lots of people, right? It's like uh, usually the gods that have been warring since times immemorial uh, continue to war when they become political uh, idolatry in the streets, so to speak. And so, yeah, I love that, Dave. I mean, the classic Augustine saying, you know, like if if a guy was going to marry a girl and he gave her a ring and she said, oh, great, I have a ring, I have no need of you anymore— um, he says, you know, God is the giver, love the one who gave the gift. And we can view, say, our country as a good thing and even a gift from God. We can't make it God. We don't say we have no use for God unless he gives us the the, the right politician uh, in, in office, so to speak. And so I think that's a very helpful uh, way to distinguish, Dave, with your uh, Augustinian rating of the affections there. I love that. Well, um, if, if you're now, I want to get practical, right? It's like, because I know I know some some Christian guys who might be really into politics who would never say that they're putting the nation above Jesus Christ and his kingdom. They would say, oh, of course not. Of course, that's absurd. But maybe they are. What are some of the, what are we looking for in our own hearts? Right. When we examine ourselves or perhaps our family, our friends, our neighbors or people in our church, what are we looking for? Uh, what do you what do you notice when the lines are starting to be blurred, or somebody's maybe going from a healthy patriotic love for America to something else? It's such an excellent and deeply practical question. I've thought about it this way: in the Bible Belt, there's a lot of guys that know how to answer the right, you know, question the right way, but their lives are a complete mess outside of what they know how to answer, and so you can really say, what are your priorities? And they know to always put God first. But if you looked at their calendars, if you look at the way that they spend monies, how they spend their days, how they spend their words and their thoughts, their functional priorities are very, very different. True. I would say that there's an analogy that we can create there because people who are 
really succumbing to this idolatry that are Christians, that are kind of becoming more and more beholden to um, idols of their politics, so to speak. They're not going to be aware of it. Again, idols blind us, but you can always tell by learning to discern the functional good news of your heart. Yeah. And so this was actually a key diagnostic that made me want to research this topic because I was noticing that there are people that I know and love that are in my broader community, even some of the people that I've, I've related to at a ministerial level, that the functional good news of their heart was not the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was, it was really their politics. It was what was coming out of their mouths. And so what they were able to share with their neighbors That's right. fluently, eagerly, they're evangelizing passionately they're evangelizing you just did a great series on evangelism (laughs) i mean this is what they're doing they're and they are doing it in the most winsome ways they can they're trying to bring up the best talking points that they can um they're not they're they're going to defend what they believe in with great passion and it's something that you're not even having to put them through an evangelism curriculum to train them how to do it's just something that's simply flowing out of their love and yet those same people if you were to say let's let's go share your faith with your neighbor they would say well i I just don't know how to do that that. i don't know if i'm really equipped to be able to do that and what that shows me is that out of just the overflow of your heart, the mouth is speaking. That's right. And you're sharing something that really is your vision of the good life, a vision of your hope, that which you really think is going to functionally save you and, and bring forth a, a type of your vision of the, the new heavens and the new earth. That's right. That's so good, Dave. And even on, even on this podcast, for those of you who have been listening in, when we talk about like, hey, let's share the gospel with someone else, we've shared, we want you to listen to them so that you can hear what makes them tick, what they talk about all the time, what they love, what ticks them off, what what are they trying to fight and defeat. And that by that, you locate what they really worship. And there's a very indirect way that we can disrupt that and help them take that down by asking questions, right? Uh, this seems to be a, a really insightful way to identify the difference in our own hearts between patriotism, a rightly ordered love for nation, and nationalism, putting our political vision higher than the kingdom of God. Now, Dave, I, we've done a podcast years ago on the Gospel Underground about Christians and government. In, in other words, like there, there have been Christian people, followers of Jesus Christ, over the last several thousand years who have existed under different kind of political regimes, under several different empires, under clan-based tribalism, you know, and I say Ireland, various forms of monarchy, right? Those by divine right of kings, uh, constitutional monarchies, under communism, under free market democracies, under theocratic religious regimes where it's illegal to be a Christian. And, and now literally every continent on the earth has followers of Jesus, in light of that, why do you think there's so much of a temptation for American Christians today to say, I don't know, want to take over the government? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I think it comes down to us recognizing that there's something that's really chaotic right now in our nation. There's a lot of polarization. There's a lot of division. There's a lot of um, chaos and rapid change in culture. There's a lot of extremism going different ways. And so whenever there's chaos, we naturally want to control. We want to be able to find a place of safety and security for ourselves, for those that we love. And it's appropriate to be discerning and to be prudent and to be aware of social dangers that are all around us. There there are many things in culture that are deeply and profoundly disturbing to me. The 
issue is when we feel like the answer to that is, well, if only I had all the power or my team had all the power, we would be able to make all things right again. And that gets you into a mind space where you adopt unknowingly, unintentionally, a very utilitarian ethic where you're basically just saying, well, the ends are going to have to justify the means on this one. So even though we're going to have to do this really bad thing, or we're going to have to support these people with really untrustworthy, terrible character, um, we're going to have to be able to do that because power really is ultimate. Everything else has to be subservient to that end of us achieving power. Dave, I'm going to have to pause you here because this is a time for some ranting um, our society currently, I know it's in the public school my son goes to right now. We've talked about this on the podcast when we did a series called Science and the Good, the scientific quest for kind of objective morality, that our society is literally drunk with consequentialism. You mentioned the word utilitarianism, which is a, one form of that which means that we don't really know what's good until we get good outcomes. It's circular. I know it's not a reasonable philosophy, but it's we're drunk with it. So people literally are taught from the youngest age, hey, um, how do I know if this action is good? Well, we have to run a social experiment and see what happens. Then we'll know if it was good or not. Causes pain, utilitarian calculus, or pleasure for most. And then you learn wisdom. And then, again, you have to run these experiments pursuing social goals, not considering what's right or wrong as we act. And so it is uh, it is a problem writ large in our society that we say, well, if we need to keep Donald Trump out of the White House, we'll do anything. Or if we need to get those other people out of the the power, we'll vote in Donald Trump, right? This This consequentialism, this utilitarianism that justifies, right, any means for whatever end we think is good is a disaster for a person's ethical life and certainly is a disaster for our society. How do we combat this, Dave, other than listening to great podcasts? How do we combat this when we when we just say, hey, the ends don't justify them? Well, we got Supreme Court justices. It's, you know, look, look, we're getting rid of abortion. Like we can vote for anybody as long as politics is about that. It's messy. We need somebody who can go in there, be messy and fight, right? Uh, how do we speak to this today without uh, further polarizing everybody who's polarized? Well, I think the first step is for us to look at our situation and interpret our situation through a lens of biblical realism. Yeah. We, we have to understand our reality in light of the Bible. And a lot of maybe some unspoken Christian nationalist thought oftentimes suppresses um, the, the doctrine of total depravity when it comes to us getting power. Yeah. Um, we, we tend to be like, well, we would, we would it's, it's like, um, you know, the Boromir with the one ring. You're saying, but I would use the ring for good. That's you right. Know, That's I, right. I would use this for good. And we don't realize the ways that um, we can easily be corrupted, but also bring our own corruption to our stewardship of power. And also, too, like I, I think we have to be able to understand that we live in this inter-Advent time. Um, Christ has come. His kingdom has been inaugurated, but it's not going to be consummated until the day Jesus comes back and makes all things new. That's right. Um, it's, it really is um, a very flawed presupposition to think, well, if we can get the power, 
we will be able to make everything the way that it needs to be. We will make kingdom of the kingdom of God on earth. And that's, that's what a lot of guys have done. I mean, even yeah. Cromwell, when he came to power in England, he said, now the kingdom of heaven is, is on earth. Is yeah. I killed all my Irish brethren, bro. Like, yeah. Like, so, and like, <laughs> yeah, there's some good, good things. I'm glad that the Westminster confession happened. There's a lot of good things that we can appreciate about that, but there was also a lot of compromise yeah. Um, a lot of ugliness, a lot of unnecessary death. And I think that we have to be able to have a lot more humility when it comes to us being able to remake the world in our own image. In, in many ways, I, I like to view politics as a a flawed but necessary coping mechanism for navigating a fallen world together. That's right. That's right. It really is That's just right. a coping mechanism. It's just a Band-Aid. And there is a day coming um, where Christ's kingdom will come in fullness and in glory. And, and if that's what is animating our hope, the church of Jesus Christ will seek to build a community that is essentially a, a colony of heaven in the land of death. That's um, right. Being that's ambassadors right. and emissaries of that hope. And if that is what's animating our Christianity, the eschatological hope, um, we can live as those who are giving the watching world a previewed glimpse right. of that kingdom that is coming in and through our lives. But the alternative is... We just go conquer Jerusalem. Yeah, you know? yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, it seems like whether, uh, well, they're all religious, whether formally religious or informally religious, every utopian vision in our past has led to the massive bloodletting uh, and conquering of peoples, to, you know, whether it's Stalinism or cultural revolutions or, like you mentioned, the, the English with the Irish. Uh, it, it leads to this, okay, well, then the kingdom now has to subjugate people, which is not the mission that Jesus gave us to make make disciples and teach people to obey uh, what he taught us. And that includes love God, love neighbor, and love our enemies, is a, which is a passage we want to... Uh, huh? We want to explain it away a little bit today and to try to end it by uh, endless qualifications of who's our neighbor and who's our enemy. And I think Jesus told some parables about that. So, Dave, in Modern Reformation uh, Online, you extended your definition a little bit. And I wanted to bring this up because I noticed a slight difference uh, from what was in the book, not difference in contradiction or anything, but uh, a little bit extra. It says, I define nationalism, exaltation of a nation to the place of ultimate concern. That's what you said in your book, to which all... Other loyalties and allegiance must be subordinated. In other words, when you make this move, you got to tap out other things being higher than them. And man, when we think about that in a context of Christian theology and idolatry, that is a very dangerous thing for the soul of a person, right? Uh, to exchange the truth for a lie, uh, whether it's the goodness of this country or that. And so, what do you th- what do you reply to say our Christian brothers and sisters who would say, "Well, David, nobody's putting America or the Constitution above Jesus Christ, above the kingdom of God." Nobody's nobody thinks that. No, that's a straw man or a red herring. Describe for us some examples where maybe you've seen this in actuality, where people are putting in maybe in Christian clothing. Uh, politics above Jesus Christ. Absolutely. Well, I can think of a few large-scale, more public, absurd examples. Um, One is a a book entitled President Donald J. Trump, The Christ, the Son of Man. It's a real book that exists that argues that um, 
there's essentially two Christs that are predicted in the Old Testament. There's the Son of God, who is Jesus, and there's the Son of Man. Wait for it. It's Donald J. Trump. And <laughs> that's a, not a, a thing. Book. Tell me that's it's not a, it's a, a real thing. thing. And again, that's an outlier thing, right? Yes, it's like, I mean, yes. That, that is yes. a fringe thing. But, but the fact that it even exists shows that there's something in our political imagination that does kind of – uh, cast these political figures in very messianic ways. Yeah, and there yeah. are ways that Christians have talked about Trump in particular, but not only him, other leaders as well, as these anointed leaders, these one, these people that have been sent by God to save us. To and and Oprah Winfrey said similar things about Barack Obama. So yes, Absolutely. this happens all over the place. Yeah, <laughs> we were talking the other day in, in conversation about how you know. Barack Obama writes his autobiography, and it's called Promised Land. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the yeah. one that's going to lead you there. And yeah, yeah. Even yeah. as he's describing the lead up to his first, uh, you know, run for president, he he talks about the need for America to make a new covenant with yeah. one another. Yeah, and that's that's messianic language, right? Yeah, and yeah. So, um, one, it's it's Washington. It's not the son of man like Donald J. Trump is, but right. but I digress. Go ahead. Yeah, it it is it is something that we have to watch our language. Anytime that we're talking about someone saving us, that's not Jesus. I think that that should um, we should become a little bit more allergic and discerning with that type of a language. But on a more practical level, like I do know people in in my own community, in my own life, um, uh, you know, a, a family that's become estranged um, or an adult child and or adult children will no longer talk to their father um, because he's so extreme in his views. And if people do not agree with him on every single thing, um, they can't have a relationship with him. Mm -hmm. I know of a marriage um, that um, sadly ended kind of in this last season and a, a large part that contributed to that was QAnon conspiracies. And, and these are not um, unintelligent people. These are people that have very high power jobs, um, very, very qualified, very educated, uh, but they're buying into this framework um, of this, this secret knowledge, so to speak, yeah. that they have. And it's very conflated with Christianity, um, but it really is kind of putting everything into a very, very much a political outcome. And yeah. so you, we mentioned a little bit earlier of how, you know, there's um, this implicit doctrine of eschatology in a lot of our political speech to where if the other side wins, it's Ragnarok. It yeah. is chaos. The world falls yeah. apart and we go back into the abyss, the, the formless void. Mm -hmm. But if our team wins, it's the kingdom of heaven. That's right. It's the new heavens and the new earth. Mm -hmm. When we start talking about politics with that level of hope, that's where you can kind of see it. I, I know a pastor um, that was even approached by a friend to be a part of a militia group because the militia group was preparing for an eventual civil war that could happen, that maybe even should happen. And, and so these are some of the more extreme examples that I've uh, noticed and felt where it's like, hey, this is this is something that's getting my attention. I'm seeing a little bit more people trying to offer even biblical and theological rationale to justify political violence. Um, those are some of the things um, that we're going to, I think, start seeing a little bit more of as well. But the, the big idea is really where we start seeing a, a wholesale um, representation of politics mm -hmm. With a savior that's not Jesus, mm -hmm. with a hope that is not the the coming of the kingdom of God, um, with a holy set apart people that's not really the church. It's just our political team. That's where um, we have a, a major issue that's happening, and that is a that's a practical thing. That's not hypothetical. Those are real situations. That's right. And usually, if if we're interacting with someone who's kind of maybe trending in that direction, they will instantly interrupt you. 
and then say, well, what do you want? Do you want this for your country? Do you want this for your children? You got to do this. And like, what are we going to do? Good men do nothing. Look what happens. And, and, uh, yeah, it's hard to, it's hard to proceed from there because there's no imagination uh, that someone could have a slightly different political ideology and possibly even be saved. Right. And, uh, and that's from both, you know, those who are maybe progressives and conservatives would say this about each other. And I think that some of the biggest problems is that, that the, the wacky is getting wackier on, on all sp- yes. on the spectrum. It's getting running to the rails and then hope, hopefully won't circle back into a, into a, a conflict, which, which is hard to, but in, in, in reality, I've asked a friend this, like, Hey man, like if there is a civil war, where are we going to be? Like, what are we going to do? Like shoot everybody? I mean, like for me, our calling is clear, right? We love and serve. We seek you be used by Jesus, seek and save that, which is lost. I'll take a bullet from a communist, uh, and, and a fascist in the middle, uh, and, uh, protect my family with my non-weaponized, uh, abilities the best I can. And then, you know, ultimately we trust in the, the saving King and in, in a kingdom that is not of this world and is not amongst the petty uh, potentates fighting for power. We have a, we have a higher King. Well, David, I have to ask this because like, if I were still living in New Jersey, you know, where my township had, you know, one party elected officials completely one way, I didn't have a lot of concern about Christian nationalism unless I watched like certain television channels saying, look at the crazy Christians or whatever. Um, Do you think this in America is a more regional problem or is it something that you would think, you know, obviously Texas, man, you, you've already mentioned it. You got families busting up over this kind of stuff. Do you think it's more kind of in Southern America, Bible Belt, the places where remnants of Christendom still maybe reign? Or do you think this is a larger problem or, or is that group of people going to make it a larger problem writ large? Yeah, I think that the regional framing will explain what type of ideology is maybe elevated or most likely to be elevated to a place of idolatry. And so here in West Texas and in a lot of the South, um, you are going to see a little bit more of the nationalism be expressed in form of right-wing, extreme right-wing Christian nationalism. That's really where it's going to be um, showing its Self and revealing itself, and like literally um, across the street from our church, you know, we had people that were selling flags that were Confederate flags, Trump flags, also like kind of like this combination of the Christian flag with Trump flags. I mean, there, there's that's something that is literally not uncommon on just street corners whenever election seasons are happening. Um, with that said, I do think that if I lived in Portland, Oregon. If I lived in somewhere other place, I would probably be um, concerned. The, the the manifestation of political idolatry would probably take a little bit of a different slant. Yeah, probably have a um, rainbow so, flag with multi multi colors in it. Perhaps that's the religion. Perhaps in those places yeah. where and and in, and then instrumentalizing Jesus to justify that, yeah, right? That's right. Um, um, which is exactly what happens. And so I do think that there can be um, very much a, a Christian nationalism on the left that the left will attempt to be able to do that at times. Um, the right is just a lot more cohesive. It's a lot more powerful. It's a lot more funded right now. Um, but I do think that it's correct to say that probably the the largest rival religion in the United States to Christianity right now is a type of syncretism mm-hmm. of the divine and our and our politics. I'm trying to basically elevate that to a level of highest concern. It's something that um, 
even for people that would consider themselves atheists, it has something that can oftentimes become an issue of the highest order. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's it's something that I, I simply want to bring that to people's attention so that they can discern for themselves. Because a, a lot of times when you hear sociologists or historians talk about Christian nationalism, they present it as if the biggest concern is that our government or our politics are becoming too overly influenced by Christianity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. My concern is the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. It's that our Christianity is becoming too influenced and shaped and formed by our political allegiances. That's right. And that's where I, I really want to um, give Christians an ability to just be reflective on this. Is, is my understanding of the gospel being formed by the expediencies of my political that's desires right. and loves? Yeah. Because yeah. that is something that we have to um, not allow our our view of the gospel and Christ's kingdom be shaped ultimately by the kingdoms of man. That's right. And we do the same thing, right, with with race. So you, you'll have white supremacy, and I've heard many of my African-American pastor friends say, well, we don't want to replace that with black supremacy. So, And it's interesting, many kind of white nationalists would have a problem with black nationalism, but yet don't see that there's a problem with kind of say white Christian nationalism. Now look, it's not we have we have a lot of piling on of, of the of the white male in our society, but certainly we can add these monikers to things such that Christianity is subsumed when in reality the teachings of Jesus and the gospels and the 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 the, the things we have in the Bible, the word of God in the New Testament should be the highest principle or as Tony Evans would say, we don't want we don't need adjectives on Christian taking over uh, the part that should be the highest that we were followers Amen. of Jesus Christ. So, well, Dave, man, hey, thanks so much. I know you're working in this space a lot and trying to help uh, believers forward in this. Share a little bit about what's going on in your life in terms of, I mean, you were mentioning some curriculum type things as well as some speaking engagement. I want to give you a little time to share what's going on in that space for you as we close. Yes, I'm actually going to be speaking next month. It'll be October 13th at Denver Seminary. They're putting on a conference about compelling incredible witness. And the topic they're going to address is going to be Christian nationalism. And I'm going to be one of the keynotes for that event. I'm really excited to be able to be there with a lot of pastors and scholars talking about this issue from a biblical and theological perspective. Denver Seminary is a very great seminary, and they're very courageous for stepping out and really trying to understand this issue um, from such depth. And so if you're I worried about losing some donors, I bet. (laughs) Oh, man, I uh, I'm 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 grateful that they're doing that. And um, I would invite anybody in the area to come and be a part of that. Um, And at the same time, there's actually going to be a curriculum that's going to be releasing um, mid month in October called Mending Division Academy. Um, It's going to be essentially a a library of video resources where um, you can watch a video and have some discussion questions. Um, It's designed for a Sunday school or small groups to essentially try to understand um, this political moment that we're in. And so it addresses a variety of different topics. Um, There's a whole course that's on polarization, a whole course on conspiratorial thinking, um, a whole course on how journalism works, how social media works. Um, I am doing a course on political idolatry Mm -hmm. titled When Political Idolatry divides us. And um, essentially what I'm trying to do is uh, distill some of the 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 big ideas from my book in a little bit more of an accessible form um, over a, a four-week course um, so that 
small groups. Um, Sunday mm-hmm. schools can be able to discuss that material. And again, that can be found on MendingDivisionAcademy.com, um, which will be live and available by the time we get to the month of October. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks. Send us some links, Dave. We'll put them in our show notes for this episode so people can find where those things are. And man, thank you so much for for not only doing this, because I know there's many of us that are just trying to talk to pretty much everybody on this stuff. And sometimes I even mentioned when we started out, hey, man, I hope somebody doesn't uh, put me in a box, so to speak. And so you've already probably borne that brunt. Enjoy the boxes. People have you in, Dave. Thank you for joining us today on the Gospel Underground. The Gospel Underground podcast is produced in partnership with the Bonhoeffer House. Review us on iTunes. Even this episode, fire up your Christian nationalist five stars on iTunes. Send your comments, feedback, questions you'd like for us to take up to to info at gospelunderground.org. We are a dialogue taking place in the borderlands between the church and culture, between the church and state even perhaps. Until the Son of Man, Son of God, which is in one person, Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, is King of kings and Lord of lords. We bow no other knee. Thanks, Dave, for joining us today. We appreciate your time with us. Peace.